What is up, guys? This is KJ. Of course, it's all like always is Wapi Ology. Now, today, uh, me and Pastor Jeff last week we tried to record this episode, but I was having Wi Fi problems. And so we got back in the lab and we recorded it again today. So I hope you guys enjoy it. This is me and Pastor Jeff. Stay tuned. All right, we'll try this one more time, man. Are we good now, Pastor Jeff? <laughs> yeah, I think so. All right. Is it still sound choppy or is it clear? It's clear. Okay, okay. We're going to try this one more time, man. We have the difficulties over here in the Wi-Fi. I don't know what's going on, guys. But um, my name is KJ, uh, short for Khalil Jones, and this is Wild Theology. Today I have a special guest with me and Pastor Jeff down in Conway, man. Um, I asked this question a while ago, but I don't know if you mind. <laughs> what was it that kind of led you into the ministry? You know, how long have you been saved? And kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Yeah, yeah, I was saved around 13. Um, my grandmother evangelized me. Or Actually, I grew up in a Christian family. My dad's a, a pastor and great, great uh, uh, parenting. I had family worship all my life, just growing up under the gospel. Uh, but, but it was hard for me to understand what faith was until, because I kept on thinking, hey, if I'm going to be saved, it would be this kind of magical experience that God would speak from the clouds and tell me I was saved. And that never <laughs> happened. <laughs> and finally, my grandmother pulled me aside and told me that faith wasn't looking at my own experiences or uh, it was uh, trusting in Christ and it didn't see self, it saw Christ. And that made it so simple for me that I couldn't help but believe. That's like, wow, that's too easy. And that was around 13 or 14. Uh, then uh, I walked with the Lord and uh, all through my high school days um, until uh, I graduated high school and ended up uh, one thing or another going to college. And uh, I, I still went to church, but I just did everything that young college students tend to do until about the second semester second year uh, my sophomore year I, I got so distraught and discouraged um, that I became suicidal mainly because the girlfriend that I thought I wanted to marry broke up with me and I was so depressed that um, I was going to end my life until I called my father and he he didn't know I was about to kill myself. He just pointed me to the Lord because he knew I was in despair. And his, his encouragement to seek the Lord was something I just kind of forgot to do. I, I, was, I was so much in sin and so discouraged and depressed uh, that he gave me hope that there was another way out of my dilemma. And that night I prayed for three solid hours until the Lord heard me until I, I came or at least it's, it's like I was praying that the Lord would bring this girl back into my life or take the heartbreak off me and make me at uh, least be able to eat and sleep and kind of move on to get over this girl. But around three in the morning, he turned my prayers to, Hey, don't worry about, this girl, you need to be worried about God because you've been living in just overt, unrepentant sin for a couple of years now. And 
Now, I still had a conscience that told me I was guilty, but it it, it almost killed me. I was uh, so distraught about my sins for the first time in two years. I repented, and I just repented one sin after another until the Lord just miraculously forgave me. And that allowed me not just to sleep that night, but it just filled me with such zeal for God. I was beside myself, and I uh, it was by the end of the week I said, I got to preach. I knew I was called to preach, or at least I didn't know for sure I was called to preach. I just knew that I couldn't contain what Christ had done for me. And uh, that's when I pursued the option of preaching. And, of course, it took about three years to affirm that calling. Um, but uh, I immediately transferred from an art major, which I was very dissatisfied anyway with. <laughs> to, uh, to going to uh, uh, a Christian college to pursue the ministry. And that was around 97, 96, 97. So that was a few years back. Hmm. What college was that that you went to, man? I was at UCA for, for, for several years. And then when that happened, I transferred to Central Baptist College, which had a, a Bible program. Uh, so I figured if I wanted to preach, I needed to study the scriptures. That's awesome, man. That's awesome, man. Um, I'm glad to have you again, man. Today, um, today we're actually going to be talking about your book, uh, The Fatal Flaw. And um, before we do that, I, I just want to kind of, I guess, get the simple terms out there. So let's take a step back real quick. So like before we dive in, maybe like three to five minutes, how would you define like Reformed Baptists or a particular Baptists? Yeah, Reformed Baptists are, were the Protestants, which means they, we believe in the five solas. Um, sola scriptura, sola Christe, you know, Christus at Christ alone by faith alone is sola uh, fide. It's by the grace of God um, alone, uh, to the glory of God alone. So you have these things that all Protestants should share. If you're going to be a Protestant, you need to believe in those five things. And not only do we believe in those evangelical truths, uh, Reformed Baptist believes in the liberty of conscience that uh, the what I think really is distinctive about Baptists themselves is uh, they separate church and state because of their sola fide, that only Christ governs the conscience. Uh, no government or ecclesiastical structure can enforce uh, a particular beliefs upon believers. It's if in fact, if it's forced, it's not real. It, it has to be voluntary something that we willfully choose to believe uh, Lord alone is a, uh, uh, over our conscience. So that's, I think distinctly Baptist. And that means only believers and only those who freely believe are a part of the church. So that's a distinct Baptist belief. But in addition to that, what makes us reformed Baptist is that we believe in the doctrines of grace and the five points of Calvinism if you want to reduce the doctrines of grace into those five points. Uh, and thus we're reformed Baptists. Now we, as a church, we're confessional reformed Baptists, which our confession that we uh, teach and adhere to is, as I've already mentioned, is the 1689 London Baptist confession of faith. That's awesome, man. I'm awesome. Glad you said that, man. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
Uh, here's another question for you. Um, so we got already established, you know, what we're dealing with as far as Reformed Baptists and particular Baptists, but how would you define a covenant? Because we're going to be diving into that a little bit as well. What is a covenant? Yeah. You know, to understand the Bible, you really need to understand what a covenant is because God is a a covenant-keeping God, and every relationship that God enters into or has is based upon a covenant. So there's no relationship that's independent or separate of a covenant. Now we think of a marriage as a covenant relationship that it's a, it's a, in the simplest terms, it's a legal or binding legal uh, uh, relationship based on love. And so it has two major elements, uh, love and legal. And uh, if you don't have those two terms it's really not a covenant so it's a it's not just a covenant based upon hey i love god loves us and we love him but it's a covenant promise it's legal it's a binding it's it's something that uh god swears to maintain based upon his own integrity based upon his own nature he has nothing greater to swear by in this legal relationship that he promises to maintain other than himself. And we are in that covenant and that covenant is based upon uh, a legal. Uh, a perfect righteousness. So that covenant is either uh, broken or maintained. Now God doesn't ever sin against us. He keeps perfect love, perfect righteousness. He maintains it on his end, but we on our end have broken it in Adam. And then, of course, we ourselves in our own natural depravity, we <laughs> have broken it as well. So the covenant is broken on our end, which means curses and damnation and alienation. God can't keep a relationship with someone that is a sinner. And therefore, the only way to be brought back into a legal covenant with God is for someone uh, to keep those terms, that righteousness on our behalf, which Jesus has done, of course. Hmm. That's awesome, man. That's awesome, man. Now we kind of got those two things established. You know, what is where we're dealing with again, Reformed Baptist, and also what is a covenant. Let's dive a little bit into like your book, man. Um, what, what kind of were you in when you decided to write that book? You know, why that title? And kind of give us some more feedback on that, man. Yeah, you know, about 15 years ago, I was um, early on in our church life. I had a friend that um, uh, that was going off to seminary in St. Louis, to Covenant Seminary. And he was, you know, attractive to uh, the Puritans and like I was, attracted to uh, uh, uh the doctrines of grace and, and most people that um, most books on the dark that are Calvinistic or come from a Presbyterian background. And of course he was going to a Presbyterian school and I saw that he was entertaining um, infant baptism because of the school he was going to and because of his love for the Puritans. And he would email me questions. I would answer them and uh, he would email me another question. And I basically I said, okay, my little answers are not going to satisfy him. So I got to really dive into the, to the subject. And I started writing a letter that <laughs> the letter started having chapters and, and then another chapter. And all of a sudden I realized I was writing a book and not a letter. And um, so I basically 
dove into not just why there's no New Testament mandate, but back to the real heart of why Presbyterians are Presbyterian friends baptized uh, their, their children. And it's based upon the covenant that God established with Abraham and then again renewed with, uh, with the Israelites at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, that the covenant was based upon, uh, was, was perpetuated. It would continue from one generation to the next based upon natural generation or childbirth. That this is the way the covenants uh, lived from generation to generation. It wasn't. It wasn't that uh, the next generation had to believe, and once they believed, the covenant was renewed or continued on. No, once they were born, they were born into the covenant, and so unbelievers could have unbelieving children, and there could have unbelieving children. It could be one generation of unbelievers to the next generation of believers. But the covenant, the, the old covenants, would continue to perpetuate that's the nature of the old testament and they presbyterians said hey because that's the way the covenants were established with with abraham and his seed and it and and the natural offsprings were brought naturally into the covenant by birth they viewed that the new covenant needed to continue on in that same way and so i had to i i wanted to critique infant baptism by critiquing that very notion that the new covenant is not perpetuated by natural genetics or natural birth is perpetuated by faith and faith alone. It's only when you believe that you entered into the covenant. It's not that you get into it by, by being in the right nation or having the right grandparent. Hey, if only it was that easy. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds easy in my mind, but it's amazing how, um, you know, Presbyterians, they, they end up wanting to make the old covenant look like the new covenant and the new covenant look like the old covenant. And so they, they have this kind of overarching covenant of grace and this various administrations of that one covenant of grace. And the new covenant is not actually a new covenant. It's just a, a new version. It's an upgrade of a, of the old covenant, but the centrals uh, is basically the same. It just has a little few additional uh, improvements made to it, which I reject that. I think it's a totally new covenant. All right. And so I, I kind of want to touch on kind of what you just said, but like, so we don't have to call anybody out. I might actually just go to like the, the different confessions. So I have the Westminster Confession, I have the Belgian Confession, and I have the Candles of Dort. And so I want to read a couple of these passages um, from the Confession. So in the Confession, the Westminster Confession, uh, let me see what chapter this is. Uh, of God's covenant with man, it says um, this covenant of grace is frequently set forth in scripture by the name of testament in reference to the death of Jesus, the tester, and to everlasting inheritance. Then it says, kind of what you said earlier, this covenant was differently administered in time of the law and in time of the gospel. Under law, it was administered by promise, prophecy, sacrifices, circumcision, and other types of ordinance delivered to the people of all Jews. And so let me go a little bit too as well. Uh, Westminster Confession of, of Baptism, it says not only those that do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of both one of both believing parents are to be baptized. And we go to the Belgian Confession. It says, we believe our children are to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant as little children were circumcised in Israel. 
on the basis of the same promises made to our children. And you guys go to the Canada's Adore, um, Article number 17. It says, um, Article 17, the salvation of infants of believers. It says, since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included. So Pastor Jeff, like, do they have a case of these things biblically? You know, how do, how do they, how are they seeing the covenant of grace? And how does that kind of differ from Reformed Baptists? Yeah, I mean, they, they have um, reasonable grounds to do what they're doing. I mean, our Presbyterian friends and brothers, I respect them greatly and have, have um, very, I think very highly of them. In fact, I count Joe Beakey a personal friend and thankful for his ministry. And he's actually preached at our church and taught at our seminary. So I want to be very gracious, and I'm, I know uh, uh, Joe Beakey and others are very gracious towards us, our Baptists, but we do differ here, and it, to me it's a, not a minor difference. And, and so though they, their reasoning uh, is, it does somewhat make sense, though I reject it, that the covenant of grace is this, this covenant that salvation is administered to and, and by uh, is it was first revealed in after the fall in Genesis, and then it was later uh, renewed or given another administration in Abraham, then again at Mount Sinai to Moses. Then the Davidic covenant is another administration, and the new covenant is the final uh, administration. And so you have the covenant of grace, and it's to believers and their seed is what they would say. It's It's for believers. Abraham was a believer, right? And it was made to him and to his offspring. And here uh, in Acts, Peter says, you know, I, I preach this to this gospel to you and to your children, and to those who are far off. I mean, so you've got this, what appears to be this, uh, under this scheme, this continuity of the covenant of grace. And thus, what was true in the Old Testament, they say, must be true in the New Testament, unless the New Testament clearly abrogates it and says, no, that's not true anymore. And since the New Testament doesn't abrogate that or cancel that, we're to naturally assume that just as it included infants in the Old Testament, it would include our infants in the New Testament. But that's based upon kind of the, the idea that the covenant of grace uh, was established in the Old Testament and renewed and then renewed again. And then the New Testament is just an additional improvement upon that. I take it, I take Ezekiel uh, to imply that the Old Testament was flawed because in the Old Testament, he says that they broke the covenant. And he says, I will make a new covenant. And the reason there needs to be a new one, like, like you don't improve the shoes or upgrade to the shoes. The shoes are worn out. They didn't work well. You got to throw them in the trash and get some new shoes. Well, the old covenant did not work because it was based not on grace; it was based upon works. And it's very clear if you look at Exodus chapter twenty that it says, "Do and live. Do this, and if you do this, if you keep my covenant, if you keep my commands, then you shall be my people. I will be your God." I mean, that's a big if. And if you don't, the old covenant says, according to Moses, "Cursed." Uh, cursed are you if you do not do all, not some, but all that is written in the law. So here you have blessings. In Deuteronomy, you have the blessings. If you keep the law, you have the curses. If you break the law, 
And apparently, from the very beginning, they broke the covenant. In fact, you can't read the Old Testament without finding out that the nation of Israel, Abraham's physical, biological children, were perpetual covenant breakers uh, throughout the generations. And, and Ezekiel says, hey, i got to make a new covenant, and it can't be like this old one. The old one which your fathers broke, uh, they disregarded. I will make a new covenant, and this new covenant is the New Testament. And it's, and it's, it's new because it won't be breakable. And to everyone in the covenant shall know me from the least to greatest. So in the Old Testament, you had a lot of unbelievers. I would say there's a remnant of believers, but the majority of them were unbelievers. In the New Covenant, it's exclusively made to those and only those who know the Lord. And thus, um, it's, it, it excludes physical children uh, unless they're believers. So how, let's kind of talk about that a little bit as well. Um, we got passages such as like Hebrews chapter 8. Let me see what verse this is. I think it's verse 7. It says, for the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look forward to a second. But kind of like you said um, previously, a while ago, um, think about like um, you have an iPhone. Uh, I'll, I'll let you get the description kind of talk about the difference between like having something new and better versus a different administration. You can, I'll let you do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um... Yeah, they, you know, they, they was okay. Okay, the old covenant, the way it was administered, had some flaws to it. But it's, it's, if you don't throw it out, it needs, it needs, it's just needs, just let's improve it. It's kind of like doing remodeling on your home. Uh, I, I don't take it as, hey, let's remodel this thing. Let's, let's, let's tear it down and start afresh. Let's have a new covenant, and that new covenant is when Jesus died and paid for the sins, and it's no longer based upon obedience is no longer based upon do this and live it's based upon believe in and then live because christ has done all the works on our behalf and and, and there was salvation in the old testament that that's a thing that a lot of people challenge me on is, well how were they saved in the old testament well they saved by they were saved by looking at the promise the gospel was given to, to uh, adam and eve after they sinned but it was a promise of a coming seed. And it didn't promise that they were the seed, but that there was a particular seed singular, which would be Jesus Christ. And Abraham uh, didn't look at himself or his circumcision or his obedience to the law. He looked to the promised Messiah, the seed that would come from him. And he believed God. And Jesus said, he, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. And uh, so Abraham knew that he was looking for a Messiah, and thus Abraham was saved uh, by looking to the new covenant, which saved him. Basically, uh, it was like retroactive. It's like uh, they, they, the Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to the cross, and were, of course, saved by faith looking backwards to the cross. All right, man. So let's um, let's just let me play devil's advocate for you know somebody out there that's going that's already kind of mad at you right now. So let's go to Exodus chapter twenty. Um, ah, that okay. <laughs> you know um, what it says, and you know, I'm the Lord God who brought you out of the land. And then paraphrasing here, and they, he gives like the law, but some Presbyterians yeah. will say the fact that he says I'm the Lord God who brought you out. This is grace of the Davidic covenant. Um, nowhere in that passage do you see like any kind of conditions. How would you kind of deal with those? <laughs> well, I would say, hey, just keep reading. I mean, that's the preface to the Ten Commandments. Uh, just keep reading. 
you know, and say, I'm the Lord God that brought you out of, you know, a house of bondage. And they're, they're, they say, okay, look, they're already out of bondage. Well, if that's true, why did that generation, the one whom he's talked to, the one he did, <laughs> said these things to, that particular generation, why did they all, besides Moses and Caleb and Joshua, why did they all die in the wilderness and unbelief? Hmm. It's not just that they died, but the writer of Hebrews says they died in unbelief. Now, ask this hard question. Where are those souls currently? Are they with Jesus Christ in the covenant of, of, of grace in heaven? Are they represented by the covenant keeper, Jesus Christ? Or are they eternally down because they died in unbelief. Now, if that's a covenant of, of grace, I don't want to be in that one. I, I, I don't want it to be based upon, hey, uh, uh, I'm out of the land of Egypt, but I don't make it to heaven. I want to be in the one that I actually uh, make it to heaven. Uh, I, I, need, I need a more sure security and sure federal head than the federal head that represented it, that generation of unbelieving Israelites that died in the wilderness. So let's uh, let's talk about that as well. So do you think it's possible, um, let's say, for example, like if we were Presbyterians, you know, just playing devil's advocate, how would we respond? Is it possible? For, for, let me go back real quick. In the covenant of works, um, the federal head is Adam, of course, right? Yes. Yes. So uh, all of us, we come to this world, we we're born in that, that covenant under, you know, the curse by that covenant because nobody can fulfill it, of course. But Jesus did. But right. like Presbyterians, they would say like our children, because that we're believers, our children are also part of this covenant. But the Bible says that when you come in this world, you're under the covenant of works, you know, under the curse. So is it possible yeah. for uh, unconverted children to be in both the covenant of works and of grace at the same time? Yeah, no, that's that's another dilemma that Presbyterians have. They want to. Um, some Presbyterians think that uh, your children are believers until proven otherwise. But thankfully, that's a minority position. Uh, most of the Puritans and uh, 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 evangelical Presbyterians that I know are no. You have to believe kids are they're in the external membership of the covenant of grace, and they're not into an internal membership. So they divide the covenant of grace into this two two kind of like inner, uh, inner uh, membership, external membership. Like there are some who are uh, like a, a gym membership. Uh, there's two types of membership. Maybe you get for, for this lower price, you can play basketball. But for the higher uh, price, you can swim and do even more stuff for the more expensive uh, portion. Well, that's where they would look at the covenant of grace. Unbelieving children – Hey, they're in the covenant of grace, but they're not necessarily saved. Um, I don't see anywhere that the, the Bible talks about a two-phase membership of the covenant of grace. But even if we accept that, um, you would have to admit that those who are unbelievers in the covenant of grace, that they're still represented by not Jesus Christ. They're represented by the first Adam. They're still under wrath they're still the children of adam they're still uh, under the dominion of satan and under bondage of the flesh and i don't see how there's a possibility to be represented by the federal headship of adam and at the same time represented by the federal headship of christ 
there's no such thing as uh, the scriptural teaching that you can be in a kind of a dual membership covenant. But, you know, I don't see that in scripture at all. I want to touch on that as well, man. Um, Romans chapter eight, verse nine, it says you, however, you know, Paul speaking, it says you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So isn't that kind of saying the same that you just said? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. That if you're in Christ, if you're represented by him and he represents you, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. It's This is about the new covenant. It's totally better. There's none in the new covenant that's not know the Lord. It's if you're in, you're, you're, you have Christ as your federal head. So could like another dilemma be this as well. So for us to say that, you know, our children, you know, believers are in this covenant, they will also have to have the Holy Spirit because that's one of the stipulations of the new covenant. Everyone that's in the new covenant has the Holy Spirit. That's right. That's right. And that's kind of where the dilemma is probably at right there as well. But uh, for you, man, what's another like um, your book, man? What's kind of like the I guess the biggest thing you would say is like, what is the fatal flaw of effing baptism? And what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And I have, I have yet to have a critique of my book that actually addresses what I would consider to be the fatal flaw of the Presbyterian system. I had people critique it and say, hey, he doesn't understand this or he doesn't do this. I'm like, I'm, I'm frustrated because I'm, I'm like, well, you don't even you didn't even read my book or you didn't read it enough to know um, where I'm saying the 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 fatal flaw of the system that holds infant baptism together. I, and that's what I want to do. I want to create a book and say, okay, here's, here's the linchpin that holds the, all the engine and the mechanism together. I'm looking at this little pin and it has a weak point. And if you pull the pin out, the whole, the whole engine or mechanism kind of just crumbles in on itself. And so I'm not saying Presbyterians are fatally flawed. They understand the gospel and they're our brothers and sisters in the Lord, but the system that upholds infant baptism has a fatal flaw to it and there's something that's missing and 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 are broken in that system and here it is and we've already touched on it they end up creating a they end up forcing christ to be a poor inadequate substitute or federal head mm-hmm. of those who end up being covenant breakers for the unbelieving infants that end up uh, dying in their sins that were born to christian parents those who go to hell who are born in Christian parents uh, end up having a poor federal head. Uh, and so that that's, puts disgrace upon Jesus. It makes his atonement insufficient. It makes his accomplishments insufficient, uh, that he, he represents some people better than he represents others that are in that relationship with him, that covenant relationship with him. So that's the fatal flaw. So uh, just for somebody out there, again, just to understand you clearly, can you like, uh, I guess, like maybe three to eight minutes kind of probably define Reformed Baptist covenant theology? You know, how do we view covenant works? How do we view the covenant of grace? You know, the covenant redemption? Can you do that for us, man? Man, yeah, that's a great question. Well, we do believe in a covenant of redemption where um, God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, the Son, the three persons of the Trinity enter into it. A relationship, or they're in a relationship together, but they. Uh, this is basically the father giving the son a people uh, that uh, 
Christ would come, the Son would come and redeem through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is this covenant uh, of redemption in eternity past. And he created all mankind in this covenant relationship. And it's both based upon perfect righteousness. Because again, God can't look upon sinners. He can't be in a relationship with evil. He can't, uh, light and darkness can't co dwell. It, so he made Adam upright and Eve upright. And he walked with Adam and Eve. He talked with Adam and Eve as a perfect relationship of love and fellowship and righteousness on both sides. And until Adam and Eve sinned and that relationship was broken and they were expelled from the garden because they broke the covenant of works. Well, after that, God promises the gospel, but didn't establish the covenant of grace. He promised there's going to be a new federal head who would establish a new covenant of perfect righteousness that is established and kept. But just the promise doesn't establish it. It just predicts it. It prophesies. And then comes the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant uh, promises Abraham that in his seed, his seed would be that new federal head who would establish perfect righteousness so that in, in that one seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And there would be many coming into this new covenant relationship through that seed. But for but that promise to Abraham was that he would be the father of the seed. And Abraham believed and he believed in the gospel, believed in that seed. Thus, he was justified by faith and was brought into uh, God's covenant people or the, through Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that new covenant was established. Does it mean uh, that, uh, the, that Jesus had died yet? It, it wasn't established yet. It was just promised. And Abraham believed it without circumcision, and thus he was saved by faith alone, so that he might be the father of both believer, of believers, no matter what their genetics are. Well, but that promise uh, was, re was renewed to his two sons, that they would be the father of the promised seed. But once uh, the 12 tribes came about, not every Jew had that guaranteed that they would be the father uh, it eventually was narrowed down to judah so all the other 11 tribes of the levite or benjamite or whatever other tribe no one had the guarantee that they would be the father of the promised seed and so they were they they themselves had to be circumcised they they for them uh, either you believe or you had to be circumcised and circumcision was a requirement of and those who were not circumcised would be cut off. So the Abrahamic covenant, strictly speaking, promised the gospel, but it was based upon circumcision. It was based upon works. And the child that is not circumcised is cut off. And the Mosaic covenant came and, and placed a greater explanation of the covenant of works by saying, hey, this is what required of you, that keep all that is written. And, and it's not just circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart that God demands of the physical children of Abraham, something they couldn't keep, something they couldn't do. So the law was there to show Israel that they were not God's people by genetics or birth or by law keeping, that they, could, that they needed a savior, they needed a seed. And throughout the whole Old Testament period, only those who believed uh, were saved, but the rest of them were 
cursed uh, until Jesus, the promised seed, comes. He establishes that which was promised uh, to Adam and Eve in the garden and to Abraham, and he established the new covenant. And only, of course, uh, he established the covenant of grace, and only those who believe uh, are members of it, both in the Old and New Testament. That's awesome, man. That's awesome, man. Um, so let's talk about this real quick. Is this uh, essential? Is this truly essential by that? Like, is this a primary issue or is it a secondary issue? And like, what's it? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a very important issue. It's not, thankfully, it's not a primary issue. That uh, the primary issue is, of course, soul saving doctrines of the gospel. Yeah. Once they start messing with the gospel, and that's why. I, I do think it's important to be consistent with the gospel because you have people in the federal visionist camp that take this Presbyterian um, paradigm that that there's a single covenant of grace with various Old and New Testament administrations, and therefore they want to make the new covenant look like the old covenant. And because the old covenant is based upon works, they want to integrate law keeping or works into the new covenant. And once you add works to grace, you destroy the gospel. So it can easily lead to a denial of an essential truth if you follow the logic out to its logical, to its natural conclusions. And that's why it's very important. But thankfully, I believe most Presbyterians are uh, naively inconsistent. And we thankful, we're thankful for their inconsistency because they hold to a robust, robust gospel that salvation is by faith alone. Grace alone and Christ alone without works. Hmm. All right, man. So let, let's talk about something um, primary then, because maybe that's somebody listening that's not saved. I'm going to give you uh, two passages of scriptures, and can you uh, define the gospel for us with these scriptures, man? Okay. All right. So the first one is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right. Well, we do have the gospel. Um, um, now, what was that first verse again? Poor spirit. Poor spirit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, here we have uh, the natural outworking of good works. It comes not as the root, but as the fruit of salvation. Um, we reject any type of good works uh, that precede salvation. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And thus, uh, being poor in spirit speaks about the fact that we acknowledge that we are poor, that we are bankrupt, that we have nothing to offer God. In fact, uh, it's not that we just have to take our sins to Christ and ask God to forgive us. We understand that, but what a lot of people don't understand, you have to, we have to take our righteousness to Christ and reject it and say, Hey, even my righteousness are as filthy rags. I have nothing to bring to you. I have nothing to offer you. I don't have any bargaining chips and I'm poor. I'm, I'm pretty much, I have, I'm bankrupt. I'm empty. I'm, I'm a beggar. And I come to I come to you just seeking mercy. That's salvation. It's it's mercy. But for those, God forgives. He regenerates. 
uh, he puts a new heart, a new spirit within them, and he he gives them a new a new heart of love. He pours out his love in their heart, and thus it's those who truly know the Lord that have a actual righteousness. Uh, not just the imputed righteousness of Christ that God gives them. They have a, a righteousness that they live out because of their regenerated, sanctified hearts. It's not the basis of their salvation. It's the, it's the fruit of their salvation. So we're saved not by works, but as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we're saved unto good works that God has preordained for us to walk in. And unlike the pre-conversion works that we did, before salvation, we had zero good works. All of our perceived goodness is tainted with so much sin that it ruins ruins it. There's not one thing we could take credit for. But thankfully, through Christ, by grace, after salvation, there are true things that we're not a perfect good works. Only Christ has that. But we we have true good works that are produced uh, by by us by faith. And through faith. And like uh, in light of that, how would you kind of tie that in to like um, what Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, man, that's so, that's so kind of scary, isn't it, KJ? Yeah. That one of the most scariest passages in scriptures. Uh, you know, and that goes back to what we we're talking about. A lot of people say about the Baptist covenant theology. What about the warnings of Hebrews? Well, the warnings in Hebrews is, is not, hey, uh, for those who don't do good works, it's those who don't believe. And we got to make sure that we don't have a heart of unbelief and departing from the living Lord. Um, so it's not uh, it, it, the thing that we have to make sure, because we may say, hey, on the day of judgment, hey, Lord, I've cast out demons and I did this good work. I went to church. I paid my tithes. I've done all these things. And the Lord's going to say to him, I don't, I never knew you. That's a scary thought because though we may thought we had good works, they weren't rooted in faith. And it'll, and that's why we need to make sure we understand the gospel clearly now uh, before it's too late and before we possibly could hear those dreadful words. And honestly, KJ, I think, I hate to say this. I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I would think majority of the churches uh, in the South and the, the Bible built of America are full of unbelievers. I, I, I don't, I would, I'd be surprised that the average church, 50% of their members actually truly know the Lord. It's a scary thing um, because the gospel is not preached and people are just thinking, Hey, I'm a good person. And I go to church and they have such a superficial understanding of the scriptures and in the end they don't know the lord and they have never known the lord do you think it's possible mm -hmm. to man like even in reformed churches like to know systematic theology and still not be saved on your way to hell yeah that's exactly right it is possible it, it happens you can be a theologian and go to hell mm -hmm. uh, in fact the demons know way more than we know about about theology they're, they can parse the scriptures better than we can, and and uh, they don't know the Lord. So it's just because you know your confession, just because you know uh, 
Grudem systematic theology or Burkhoff systematic theology, or if you've read Calvin's Institutes 20 times, it, it is not a substitute for living faith, saving faith. Um, so I, 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 that's why the Bible tells us to examine ourselves, tells us in other places to make our calling and election sure. Um, let's not take this for granted. Uh, uh, it's, it's something that um, we need to take heed for sure. But, you know, the answer is the same. If we're saved or if we're not for sure we're saved or uh, it's, it's cast off our good works, depend not upon them, look totally, fully, exclusively to the life, death, resurrection, the finished works of the man, Jesus Christ. He alone can save us. He's the only thing I have. I, I know at the day of judgment, you know, I, I'm, I'm so confident I'm going to make it into heaven right now, at least as I now stand, is because uh, I have only one hope. I have, I know I'm, I'm so wicked. I only have one hope, KJ, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. And God has given me a promise. And that promise is so sure that God would have to break it. God would have to be a liar to send me to hell because that promise is my only hope. That's my only thing I've got is the word of God is that gospel presentation that, and, and, and that's my, that's my confidence. It's, it's not me. I've seen myself. I see Jesus and boy, that's a certain surety for me. That's, that's all I have, but he's enough. Uh, I'm banking on him being enough. I know he's enough. He's too good for God to cast me into hell. Christ is too good. He's he's perfect, and I I, I depend upon that. And I, it's, it's such a blessing to know the gospel. Man, 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 man. Uh, this has been my last question for you, man. Um, what is kind of like some of your last thoughts? Um, what's some good resources you have out there? If people are interested in Reformed Baptist theology and um. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book that released last week? Yeah, I mean, I, I would encourage a selfish plug here. I'd encourage all your listeners to go to freegracepress.com and check out all our resources. we got a ton of good books. we we got a little good book out there. I'm talking about the root and fruit of good works by Steve Lawson and Joe Beakey. Uh, it's an excellent little book. explains uh, the, the nature of good works and where they, they're to be placed in salvation. Great resource. Um, I have another little book called The Kingdom of God that I wrote that explains Baptist covenant theology uh, that goes alongside of the fatal flaw book that we've been talking about. But my new book that you asked about is called The Five Points of All Millennialism. And I wanted to, because there's not one out there, I wanted to write a book that didn't critique the other positions like premillennialism or postmillennialism. I wanted something that just gave a simple, clear presentation of the all millennial position because uh, I wanted, I, there's really not anything that I know of that can take, take that position and present it um, where the average person can grab a hold of and goes, Hey, I may not believe this, but at least now I know what all millennialism is all about. That's awesome, man. I'm rather have you on maybe one day soon again, man. Talk about that five books, man. With your five points in that book. Yeah, I'd love to do it, KJ. I got you, man. But 
I'll do, I'll do anything for you, man. <laughs> appreciate it, man. Appreciate it, man. Uh, thank you, man, for coming apart, man. I know we had our technical difficulties as well, man, with the Wi-Fi and stuff. But today was successful. I'm glad. Thanks, man. Thanks for having no me. Problem, man. Thank you again, man. I'll talk to you later, man. Okay. Take care.